I'd like for you to turn to the sixth chapter of um, the book of Hebrews. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. For in the case of those who have been once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Um, I look forward to a migraine headache tonight, hoping I'd get one. I wouldn't have to deal with this passage, because this is a tough passage. In fact, this is what others have said about this verse, this passage of Scripture. The naughtiest... Naughtiest problem in Hebrews, if not the whole Bible, this passage has been the battleground of the ages. Another said, The difficulty of Hebrews 6 cannot be exaggerated. This is the most terrible passage in Scripture. And another said, This is known to be the most difficult passage in the whole canon of Scripture. And serious Bible students find themselves on opposite ends of the pole with regard to Hebrews 6. Somebody told about the pastor of a very large Baptist church who one day had his Greek professor preaching for him as a guest preacher. And he is introducing his professor. He said, this man is the greatest um, uh, teacher I've ever had. He 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 know he's forgotten more Greek than I've ever I'll ever know. He said he he just he he is just a tremendous um, uh, uh, interpreter of Scripture. He says he is the greatest except for Hebrews six. And the Greek professor got up and and said this. He said, "I'm so glad to be back, be in my one of my students' churches." He said, "I've watched with great pride." This man, as he has developed into one of the most, uh, uh, one of the leading pastors of our convention, and he is such a great Bible uh, expositor, except for Hebrews six. It is really the battleground of uh, of the of the ages. For this passage is is the reason why, and and sufficient reason, never to tackle an exegesis of Hebrews. Many have come to uh, this scripture with a bias and we have our ideas about what it says before we ever get to it. And that's not, it's, it's not 
uh, hard to do that. In fact, it's easy to come to a passage of Scripture with your own bias and bent or prejudice. But I want us to try, if we can, to lay aside all that we have been taught in, in our, by our families, our parents, and our, the church where we grew up concerning, you know, uh, is it possible to fall away from grace and just kind of roll up our sleeves and see if we can interpret this passage from a purely analytical and objective perspective. The last time we addressed the scripture of Hebrews, we dealt with the last four verses of chapter 5. And these last four verses deal with or have to do with maturing as Christians. And what he says in chapter 5, the context is, that we're to move on to Christian maturity. He said, leave the milk bottle behind and the, and the, and the simple things of childishness and let's move on to Christian maturity. And there is a rebuke in verse 12 of chapter 5, one of those rebukes that is scattered throughout the entire epistle of, uh, to, to the Hebrew Christians. And he says, you folks should be at a place where you can teach and you're having to be taught. And he rebukes them for that. We also found in verse 14 the, 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 the things that are necessary, the essentials for maturity in the Christian life. One of them is solid food. And we identified solid food as being that which you prepare for yourself so that you don't just take what somebody teaches you in a Sunday school class or, 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 or some preacher preaches to you, but you get into the Word of God and you dig out the truth for yourself. The second essential for maturing in the Christian life is a continual practice of truth found in verse 14 so that you take the truth that God gives you from Scripture and you do it over and over and over again. You live out that truth in practical practice. Practice, practice, practice it, see. And the third element that is essential for the mature Christian life is a sensitive discernment to that which is, you know, good and evil. Evil being in the, uh, in the sense of tearing you down and good being in the, the ability to build you up toward maturity so that it stands to reason. Now watch this carefully. By the way, I want you to take good notes tonight. You can't get this by osmosis. I mean, you've got to think, you know, and, and, and search this with me to get it, Okay. Now, it stands to reason then when he comes to chapter 6 that he, that he says that we need to leave the building blocks in the nursery, these little blocks that you've been playing with, and you need to move on from the ABCs, the elementary things of the Christian life, and press on to maturity. And then with the mention of the little word not, you see it in verse 1, not laying again. He inserts and suggests two or three words that give us a clue as to what these foundational things are, these milky words are. The, word, the insertion of the word not and then the things that follow it help us to see the things that he says that we need to leave behind and press on to maturity. And they fall under three categories. 
The first category is the category of conversion. He said you need to leave the foundations of the gospel. Now, if you take that statement out of context, that sounds like heresy. What he's saying is you've got to get beyond the elementary truths of how to be saved. You need to get beyond repentance from dead works and faith toward God for salvation. Now, we call that the simple gospel. But you know what would happen if every Sunday from this pulpit all you heard were the, you know, the things that have to do with the you know, Roman road to salvation and the, the three, uh, you know, the, uh, the little, uh, what's it called? Four basic laws and all those kind of things. If, you, if that's all you heard, you'd be pretty immature as a Christian. He's saying you've got to get beyond the categories of salvation. The second category, he says, has to do with washings and the laying on of hands. I understand that washings have to do, has to do with baptism and the laying on of hands has to do with ordinances and the third category, that second category, I want to call preferences. Preferences. So that what he's saying is this, that you can spend all your time talking about preferences with regard to, to baptism, the mode of baptism. Is it by sprinkling or, 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 or pouring or dunking? Or the Lord's Supper? You know, you spend all your time arguing about how many times you're supposed to have the Lord's Supper. Are you supposed to have it every Sunday and every service or once a quarter or whatever that? He said, it has to do with your preferences with regard to the ordinances of the church. Get beyond that. The third category is the category of prophecy. That is, those things that deal with the end time, resurrection and judgment. Now, for a long time we have assumed that the matters of prophecy really are the real meat of the Word. Not according to this author. Those things are elementary. They're like, uh, you know, blocks in the nursery. He said, you've got to get beyond talking about what's going to happen when the Lord comes back things that relate to eschatology and the end time. And those three categories, he said, you've got to move beyond if you ever get to a mature faith. And then verse 3, don't miss it. For verse 3 is the transitional sentence, and this is what verse 3 says. And this we shall do if God permits. If God permits what? What are we going to do if God permits? Well, look back at verse 1. If God permits it, we will become mature Christians. This we will do. We will reach maturity in the Christian life if God permits. And I know what you're thinking. Your immediate reaction is, if God permits Christian maturity, I thought that's what God commanded. I thought what, that's what God demanded of all of us, that we reach maturity. But there is an instant, an instance where God does not permit spiritual maturity in Christianity. There is an instance in which God does not permit us to, to reach maturity as Christians. Now, what is the instance? It is verses 4 through 8. When a person who has been enlightened, tasted of heavenly things, partaken of the Holy Spirit and then falls away from that, he will not be permitted to reach spiritual maturity. Now let's look at the two positions, two main positions, 
that verses 4 through 6 talk about. The first position is the position that what he's talking about here is that a person, this person is saved. He has been saved. He's tasted of the heavenly gifts. He's been enlightened. He has been made partaker of the Holy Spirit. He's been saved and he falls from the position or the condition of salvation. Some, that position, first position is that that's what he's talking about. A person who has been saved and he falls out of grace. The second position is that what he's talking about is he's talking about people who think they've been saved, but they haven't. They profess Christianity, but they don't possess Christianity. They've had the light. They've been exposed to the gospel. They've tasted of the heavenly gift, but have not partaken of the heavenly gift. They have dipped into salvation, but have not really, are not really in salvation. That's the second position. That these are people who really you might you know, refer to as, as hypocrites who, who pretend to be saved but have never really been saved. Position number two. Now both positions have a problem. You're going to have a problem with both positions. Let's go back to position one. That what he's talking about in verses four through six, that he's talking about people who have been saved and have fallen out of salvation. If that is what he's talking about, then it is not possible for that person to be saved again. You see what he says? If he's talking about people who have been saved and they're in the family of God and they're now out of it, in the kingdom and now out of it, then what he's saying is that if that's the position, that person cannot be saved if he falls away. He didn't say that it would be difficult to be renewed to repentance. He said it would be impossible to be renewed to repentance. But if you take the second position, you've got a bigger problem than the first one. The, the first problem you've got is that you're going to have to do some semantic footwork to get around the statements. Once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, partaken of the Holy Spirit. Now that says to me the man's been saved. And if, you get, if you're going to take the second position that a person professes Christianity but does not possess it, he thinks he's saved but he's not, you're going to have to do some fancy semantics to get out of that. But if you can do the semantics and get around that, you still got a problem, this is the problem. That you're saying that a person who has professed Christianity but has not possessed it, then he can never be saved. And Dehan says, are you ready to do this? Are you ready to say to a person who falls from grace that you, can, that you cannot be saved again? Or are you ready to tell a person who professes Christianity but, not, but does not really possess it that he can never be saved? You're not prepared to do either one of those, are you? I'm not. So there must be a third position that he's talking about here. There must be a C. There's an A and a B. There must be a C. All right? I, I believe there is a C. There is a third position. Right, hang right in here with me now. Let's look. There are two crucial words found in verses 6 and 7 to this third position. They are the words, underline them, put them in your notes, repentance. And in verse 7... The word 
vegetation. Two crucial words. Repentance and vegetation. Now, he's talking about, in my opinion, he's talking about the repentance of the saved. Now, these folks... It, it, it's, it's obvious that the people that he's referring to, in fact, the whole book is written to Christians. He's talking about people who are saved, and he's talking about a repentance of the saved. That's the first crucial thought word. But the word vegetation in verse 7 refers to fruit of a Christian. The fruit of a Christian. As a matter of fact, I read verse 9 tonight, even though it wasn't listed in the text, because verse 9 gives us a code word to what vegetation is. He says in verse 9, he refers to those things that accompany salvation. So that what he's saying in verse 9 is that that which a saved person always will manifest. Verse 7 suggests what a saved person will manifest is what he refers to as vegetation. We, 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 we refer to it as fruit, the fruit of a Christian. What his salvation produces in his life. So that what he's talking about is not worthless root. He's talking about worthless fruit. Now watch carefully. So that the actual peril of chapter 6 is this. That here is a person who has tasted of the heavenly gift. He has partaken of the Holy Spirit. He has been enlightened. He has received the light. And he falls away from that. It doesn't say that he falls out of grace. Now watch carefully. He falls away from that experience... You know people like that by the hundreds who make up Baptist churches and other churches who have apostatized with regard to what they have experienced. They have tasted, they have been enlightened, etc., but they're no longer a part of that. They have left that. They have fallen away from that. And the peril is that if that happens, that person will become a shipwreck and a castaway, and he says that he can go far enough into the depths of the carnal life that God does not permit him to return to where he was. Now I need to say that again. That that Christian who has partaken of the Holy Spirit, he can get so far away into the carnal life that he dies there and God does not permit him to repent and come back to where he left. That's a frightening thought. Now look at verse 8. He says, but if it, and you need to underline that little word it. It's found three or four times in verse 8. What is the it that he's talking about? He's talking about the vegetation of verse 7, the fruit. He says, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless. That is, the fruit, the vegetation, what his life produces, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. What? The fruit of his life, his rewards. So that here is a Christian who does not press on to maturity, 
and he just gets so far into the carnal life and, and, and gets so far away from what God wants him to be that God ref, does not permit him to return and repent and his rewards and his fruit is destroyed by fire, is consumed. He loses his reward. So that what the author is saying, the writer envisions people who have been following Christ but now leave his company and, he, the, and such cannot be brought back to repentance. He doesn't say they can't be forgiven. He says they cannot be permitted to repent. He's talking about Christian apostasy and their fruits and their rewards are burned up and their life is a shipwreck. Now you can prove tonight by this passage that a person can lose their fruit but you cannot prove they can lose their salvation. For if you prove that they can lose their salvation, you have to assume then they can never be saved. You see? But they can lose their fruit. It's consumed. It's destroyed. The rewards of their life are lost. And they themselves end up being a castaway. Can you think of any more th anything more tragic than for one of God's people to live his life out, lose all of his reward, and his life become a castaway? A castaway. Now, are there, are there any other scriptures in the Bible that would substantiate position three? I think there are, and I want to show you some. So we're going to go back. Y'all are still out there, aren't you? You still hanging in there? Let's go back to Luke. And we'll work our way back toward Hebrews from Luke. All right? So we're going to turn to Luke chapter 8, verse 14. Luke chapter, Luke chapter 8, verse 14. Now this is the parable of the seed and the sower. Some fellow on stony ground, does that ring a bell? Yeah? All right, verse 14. When you find it, then look up this way so I know that you found it. Luke, Luke 8, 14. Look what it says. It says, And the seed which fell among thorns, those, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no vegetation, and bring no fruit to maturity. And uh, thorny passage that we've wrestled with. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them. The them refers to the fruitless branches and cast them into the fire and they are burned. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's over the epistle to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll read verse 24 through 27. 
Find it? Have you found it? Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He's talking about the games, the Olympic games, and they, the winner would receive this wreath, this perishable wreath put on their head. He said, we're going after that which is imperishable. And he says, therefore, on the basis of an imperishable reward, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating air. So I'm not just shadow boxing. But I discipline my body. I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, I'm not ever going to be guilty of saying that the Apostle Paul was worried about losing his salvation. But I am prepared to say that he was in, lived in the conscious tension that if he didn't exercise self-control and press toward maturity, that he himself, his, his witness, his fruit would be disqualified, would be lost. All right? 1 Timothy. That's the letter of uh, Paul to Timothy. And it's over right over there toward the end of his epistles. So let's turn to that. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 18 and following. Hang in there. Just two more. And don't run out on me yet. This, I, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that, that by them you may fight the good fight. Keeping faith and a good conscience, look, look, which some have rejected. Now, it didn't say that they had rejected salvation. They had rejected keeping their faith and a good conscience keeping what their faith demanded. It says, And they suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And he names them. I mean, he calls names. I don't guess I'll do that, but he, he does. He says, Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. All right? 2 Timothy 4, begin at verse 9, and that'll be the last. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 through 14. He said, Make every effort to come to me soon. He's writing Timothy. For Demas having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, he has done what Hebrews is talking about. He has forsaken the faith and gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. 
Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak with which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Now look at this verse. Alexander the coppersmith. That's the guy he's talking about over here in 1 Timothy 1.18. Did him wrong. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will, uh, will repay him according to his deeds. God will take care of him, he said. And verse 15. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Now, here is the position three. Is that a person who falls away from his faith, if he continues in that place, in that way, in that apostasy, that at some point in that, God does not permit him to come back to where he was. And so everything in his life is lost. And there is a direct warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. It says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Folks, you and I have a tendency to take the Christian life very, very um, flippantly and, um, you know, and, and we, don't, we don't take it too seriously. And we just assume, you know, that, you know, I'm, I'm saved and everything's going to be all right. Let me, let, me, let me say, this is serious business. And if a person does not press on to become a mature Christian, to get beyond the elementary things, it just may be that one day he's a castaway and a shipwreck and will stand before God with no reward. I can't think of anything that would be worse than that. Let's bow and pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us. And when you speak, you make clear that your demand of us is a greater demand than we really make upon ourselves. And I pray you'll help us to see how seriously you deal, you, you consider, you, you, you look at, you view what it means to be a Christian. And help us to have the same kind of serious regard to pressing on to maturity. Forgive us that we've been Christians for years and don't know any more than when we got to the first step and help us to press on to be everything you want us to be, because I pray in Jesus' name. We'll have an invitation tonight. The invitation involves three decisions. A decision to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. A decision to be obedient to God with regard to His church. And a decision concerning how you're, how you're using, how you're experiencing the Christian gifts and the Christian life. And while we stand, we invite you to come.